Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Well, today, as we continue into our sermon series, Asking for a Friend, Exploring Questions About the Bible and Faith, we have another question that's been put forth by a member of our community that we'll be addressing. Today's question that we'll be addressing is, does everything happen for a reason? So, now to be clear, the Bible does not say anywhere that everything happens for a reason, but on the other hand, it doesn't say that things happen for no reason either, or that God is detached from us in our joy and suffering and the meaning in our lives, and that things just happen randomly. And even though it doesn't say this in the Bible, you've probably heard Christians say this from time to time. Maybe you've said it yourself. This is an important question for people who want to follow Jesus to wrestle with, though, because although many good things happen in life, there are also many unexplainable bad things and hardships we experience in this life, too. And if we're not careful about how we answer this question, it's easy to inappropriately attribute God's hands to our suffering or our successes that actually have nothing to do with God. Either way approached wrongly can corrupt our witness as to who Christ is. For example, to say God curses people with horrible diseases or orchestrates tragic accidents totally misrepresents our God, who is all good. God does not create our misfortunes in this life. On the other hand, to say that God is in the business of divvying out wealth and fortunes to those who have earned his favor and to equate our desire to living big with God's blessing also totally distorts the way of God's grace and the way it works. God's blessings have nothing to do with what we are able to amass as a personal fortune in this life. No, in reality, God blesses the poor too. And actually, the who and why God blesses is not dictated by who we think deserves his blessing, but who God chooses to bless. Well, all that sounds good in theory, right? But when things actually hit the fan, when someone we know shares bad news and suffering is at our doorstep, it's hard not to say something, isn't it? We don't like awkward silence and it's hard to hold ourselves back from saying something sometimes. Rather than just sit or stand in the discomfort, it's more appealing to get rid of that silence or say something. But the truth is, whose anxiety are we really relieving in those situations if we try to fill the silence with unhelpful words? Is it our anxiety we're relieving, or is it the person we're there to comfort for that we're relieving? Personally, I can't help but chuckle a little bit because whenever I've been offered this advice by someone, don't worry, everything happens for a reason. It's always been in those uncertain times where there's either been a loss or there is a loss that's imminent. I'll bet you that sounds familiar. And as well intended as those who have said this, it's never brought any consolation or comfort. Maybe you can relate. Though worse than hearing everything happens for a reason, I would argue, is when someone comes and attempts to coach you through your grief. You know, they step beside you and pat you on the back and say, don't worry, you're going to be okay. 
when their silence would have been much more appreciated and more of a better response at that time. Maybe you can relate. The problem is, everything happens for a reason doesn't address the whole story for any of us. It doesn't address that God isn't the cause of everything. For example, God doesn't make us do bad things. No, we do just fine making bad choices all by ourselves, don't we? It doesn't address the magnitude of the brokenness in the world, the fracture impacting all of us in all of creation, resulting from when humans first decided to disobey God and take what they wanted from the tree of knowledge and decided to cut their own path and their own destruction. It doesn't address the things that don't make sense, like diseases that take things away from us, diseases that shorten our lives. No, everything that happens for a reason evades addressing the lack of harmony that we experience in this world, and there are many of those things. It doesn't take much effort to think of things that fit into that core, that category where everything happens for a reason doesn't satisfy. Things like car crashes, airplane crashes, helicopter crashes, the devastation of natural disasters, the effects of ongoing wars such as the one in Ukraine or the civil war in Sudan, claiming innocent lives in the wake of senseless violence, separating families, distance, displacing people from their homes, and making refugees around the world. These are only but a few examples of the seemingly endless list of unexplainable accidents or events that confront us where everything happens for a reason doesn't so easily satisfy. You and I have no doubt experienced some of our own personal accounts of tragedies and heartbreaks in life that have made us feel lost. It has made many of us pause at this saying, everything happens for a reason for a good reason. Offering platitudes or reasons detached from our suffering or trying to redirect someone from the pain in front of us that cannot be ignored does not offer us the kind of healing that God offers. The truth is, though, it's not easy to navigate talking about the difficult parts of life, the hurt we experience, the wounds inflicted by relationships, the losses we incur in life, the medical report that changes everything. When things don't work out the way they th we thought they were supposed to, or at least not the way you or I hoped they would turn out, everything happens for a reason becomes more of an insult than a comfort. It leaves us abandoned in our sorrow and looking for something that might not be there, a reason. So what do we say then to our loved ones when, we, when they encounter these things in life that rips the carpet out from underneath them, so to speak. These things that are wounds that will be carried with them through the rest of their life. Because eventually, you and I are confronted with this. <clears throat> when we encounter those things that cannot be fixed, those things that seem to defy reason, where do you and I go when it seems there are no words left to speak that will console a loved one? Well, we do have a choice in that, but the first step is listening and arresting the compulsion to feel like we have to come up with an answer. If we force it, we're merely offering human reasons and human words that are not like God's purposes and they are not like God's word. Our words are limited in the comfort that they can give and the extent of their effectiveness apart from God and his word. 
And we would do well to turn our eyes towards God's word in these situations and trust in what he hopes for us and has for us above our own imagined scenarios in his word. The passage we're going to look at today from Paul's letter to the Romans offers us a much different lens into why things happen that doesn't give us a list of human reasons limited in hope, constructed on human possibilities, but rather pulls us into God's story that offers us hope that goes beyond what we can imagine and accomplish on our own. With that, I'd like to invite you all to open up your Bibles and follow along as I read from our scripture today, coming from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you look around the world, there's a seemingly natural inclination to want to make sense of why things happen, in, just in the way that we speak. And despite all the polarization in the world, there is one thing that we can all agree on, I think, and that is that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Naturally, this makes us ask why, but of course, we might all give different reasons and different solutions. Ironically, as I was preparing for this sermon, I just so happened to come across a news article about the recent wildfires in Greece that caught my eye, entitled, Rhodes Wildfires Are Like a Biblical Catastrophe. When you read a headline like that, you get the sense they feel damned. The devastation is real, and the people there are not only asking why, but how their lives will go on. Whatever the reason for these fires was, though, the reasons are not going to repair the damage done. And the reasons are not going to provide the hope to go on. And if you think about it, hope is the first step needed in their healing. 
For those of us who believe in God, we have an interest in connecting our lives with God and figuring out what life is supposed to look like when we follow Jesus. Though that does not mean that we know the whys for everything. For those who don't believe in God, there is still an inclination to want to make sense as to why things happen and how they are connected, even if for only the reasons of scientific reductionism. And there are also believers, if you think about it, that unwittingly fall into the trap of trying to use reductionism to explain why God does what God does. Of course, that's not grace. And we have great examples of this in the Bible, too. Think of poor Job and his friends who had convinced themselves that the only reason for Job's suffering had to do with the sins that he must have committed. But in the end of Job's story, we find that not only was that not the case, but that God doesn't always want us to know the reasons, that the ways of God are inscrutable. We can be thankful we have a God who gives us grace and gives us second chances when we fall, and that he is not like the one Job's friends describe. No, the God that we have offers us grace and hope, hope that when things fall apart, God has a way to put our lives back together. It might not look like it used to. It might not look what we expect it to look like, but it's a hope we can trust in because God is faithful. The text we read for today grapples with the reality that our good news, that all our good reasons for everything is tied to a cross. That all the suffering we experience in this life is suffering that is in solidarity with Christ and what he suffered on the cross for us because we belong to Christ and because this and only this, there is no meaningless suffering. The Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth remarking about suffering in our passage says, God reckons with us precisely at the door of suffering that it is that he justifies himself in our presence and teaches us through his spirit to cry, Abba, Father. So it is at the door of suffering that we do indeed find our Savior. There are unexplainable aspects as to why this suffering comes about for us that we may never be able to ascertain. But as Paul teaches his readers, this suffering is not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And this glory, this hope that we await is something that all creation, humanity, and even God's spirit groans for the day when the effects of the fall will be undone, according to theologian Catherine Greed. Did you catch that? Even God's spirit groans for the full completion and redemption of all creation. It is as the spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words or groans for us. Beloved, God is not the one creating the suffering, the tragedies in this world. He's rooting us on. He's with us in our suffering, eagerly awaiting for us to be made complete and redeemed through him. The world, creation, humanity is not the way it's supposed to be. In the meantime, he's inviting us to participate in his work, bringing glory to his name as he works through us. He's inviting us into new life through him that reflects his hope in our lives, in the lives of others he puts in front of us to be in relationship with.
The way Christ works through us and in us works differently for all of us as we await for that final call for his return when the creation will be made visible to all. But it is always through his word that he is reaching out to us, the word that he creates with, renews with, and redeems with. It is through his word that God is always calling us into his work and revealing this word to us through his spirit. It is a spirit that he gives us that leads us each in different ways to bring glory to God. As Paul puts it, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You see, it's God's purposes that he puts in us. It's his spirit that lovingly dwells in us, that reveals his word to us and brings us into his word that leads us in his direction after we have been hopelessly and aimlessly wandering in our own directions, looking for reasons, looking for the whys, a wondering that separates us from looking up to where our help comes from, a wondering that keeps us focusing on what we do rather than what God does. And when that becomes a habit, if you think about it, we get used to looking for human reasons rather than what God's plan reveals. That for those who love God, there's a different story than what humans can give, a better story. One that doesn't rest on our efforts, one that is not orchestrated by us, but one that he invites us into for his purposes. For example, Jesus could have raised anyone from the grave, but Jesus chooses Lazarus in a particular way to show his power to the world at a specific time, to the glory of the Father. If you pay attention to the story, Jesus raising Lazarus has a special way of glorifying God. It brings the people who love Jesus into his story. It creates faith in them. It generates hope in them. Lazarus being raised from the dead is a foreshadowing of Christ's resurrection, but it is also the powerful moment that sets in motion the plot to kill Jesus. It's part of the whole story of God uniquely. In the case of Lazarus, who Jesus raised, he is called out of death into life and joins Jesus' story. He and his family become agents of spreading the word and of the good news. The Spirit opens up the ears to recipients to hear and believe, to have hope that our Redeemer has come, that God's promises are true. This is the power of the gospel unleashed, that there is belief and hope in its wake as it is proclaimed. To write a biography of Lazarus would no doubt show that the salient moment of his life was to be a witness to God. His story is made part of God's story by God-saving action towards him. You see, Lazarus doesn't plot his own participation with God. God calls him. He chooses him for his work to be accomplished through him. He's not a guy who had any special status or had proven himself worthy of God's rescue, yet God steps in in a moment that is appropriate to God's purposes, which is when he is needed. He is faithful to those who love him. He reveals his compassion for the sisters of Lazarus, and all the while, this compassion, in a moment, is part of God's purpose, healing him, restoring him, giving faith, new life. 
and it is always glorifying God by their participation as they are receiving God's grace. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Lazarus didn't ask to be healed, but Jesus did have a relationship with the family we know, and he responds to their need. He loved them, and they loved him. The sisters Martha and Mary called for Jesus and showed faith. When Jesus comes in the aftermath after the tragedy of death that had put Lazarus in the grave for four days, Martha still shows faith in who Jesus is as Messiah. Martha shows us what hope looks like through the suffering, hope that doesn't give up because her hope is in the one coming into the world, the one who brings us resurrection. God comes to redeem us because that's who he says he is, because his word is true when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who believes in me will never die. He tells Martha this before his resurrection, and she believes him despite all the conditions surrounding her that would give her reason to doubt. Martha is part of Jesus' story. She is part of his word and is one of his witnesses that shares hope for resurrection. What is interesting, if you look closely, is that Martha only tells Jesus she believes in the resurrection after life, the future glory. She hasn't worked out yet that Jesus is going to prolong Lazarus' life now, but he does. God gives us something to believe in with his word, a word that gives life and hope and something we can hold on to, a hope that we cannot see, but a hope that we wait for patiently. And he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can receive and make sense of his word against the words of the world that give us no hope. God comes down and shows us that he is who he says he is, the one who brings life that defeats death, the one who all creation groans for to be redeemed, the one and only one who can bring things together in his name and break the curse of death. For those of us who follow Christ, we cannot be satisfied with everything happens for a reason. Reasons don't escape death like resurrection does. Reasons point us back to the futility of ourselves alone without Christ, focused on ourselves where we always remain fractured without him, trying to build ourselves up into something we cannot be without God with us. Without him, our life is a biblical catastrophe, still separated from the fall, hopeless in death and destruction. But that is not our future. Platitudes offer nothing to us. Christ promises to be with us always, even in our suffering, and teaches us to call out to him in our suffering, Abba, Father. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with us so that we can abide in him and his word, so that we get to be part of his story, a story that presses up against the barrier of time that is death, a story that breaks the barrier by not fearing death, but trusting God will clear that obstacle for us too and bring us into his story that never ends. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.